You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Women of color, black and brown creators, their rates were coming in way lower than their counterparts. And this was due to a lot of them just not understanding their value, not understanding what they could charge for certain scopes of work, and also just not having representation. Are you getting the attention you deserve from your financial advisor? Call our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, at 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan to help you decide. Hey, everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. As I was prepping for today's show, a few headlines in particular caught my eye, all proclaiming that COVID is over. And I have to say, that is news I've been wanting to hear for more than two years now. There were a lot of examples cited. The fact that masks are no longer required on airplanes, that COVID testing isn't necessary to go to most places abroad or to re-enter the United States, and that masks are no longer necessary to see a Broadway show or a concert in New York, with a few exceptions. So yes, there are some signs all around us that this pandemic is over. But I gotta wonder, is it really over for women? Have women recovered from this once-in-a-lifetime hit to our careers, our routines, our savings, and the physical and emotional burdens that we were asked to shoulder? I don't think so. And no community was hit quite as hard by COVID as the Latina community. In 2020, Latinas had the highest initial unemployment rate. It stood at 20.2%. Today, 1 million fewer Hispanic or Latina women are employed compared with pre-pandemic levels. Part of this is because Hispanic women were more likely to stop working due to childcare needs than Hispanic men, white men, or white women. But also, Latinas alone make up one in 10 workers in the leisure and hospitality industry, which we know was particularly hard hit these last few years. Today, more than one third of Latinas report finding it difficult to afford necessities such as food. Nearly a third have no rainy day funds. And of course, we know that Hispanic women have long lagged in terms of earning power, making just 55 cents on the dollar when compared to white men. So today we're asking, when is COVID really going to be over for Latinas? But more importantly, how can we ensure it's not just a return to normal, but a return to better than normal, better than ever, because we don't want to go back. We want to go forward. Pre-pandemic in 2019, Hispanic net worth stood at $36,000 compared to median net worth for white families of $189,000. We need to make sure that the Latinas in our community and every community, frankly, have the tools that they need to succeed. And we're gonna do it today with Pamela Zapata, who is a first-generation American entrepreneur and 
diversity and inclusion trailblazer. She is the founder and CEO of Society 18, an influencer management and consulting agency with a focus on multicultural content creators and digital strategy. Pamela, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Such a wonderful introduction. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. Let me start with you and your company. You built a seven-figure business in less than a year. I mean, first of all, congratulations, but also, how did you do that? Thank you. Thank you. It's crazy to hear that because it's what I did, but it was something that I didn't expect to do. I think initially when I quit my job at the marketing agency I was working at, my fear was that I wasn't going to be able to pay my rent. However, due to the lack of diversity that I saw within my industry, and not only just that, but the pay disparity, I knew that it was something that I had to do. And within my first six months at my agency, I was able to essentially make my salary. And then from there, I realized, all right, I'm doing something powerful. I'm doing something that is necessary and needed because there was a lot of content creators that were working in this space who didn't understand their value, didn't know how to negotiate, were signing away all their rights. And I felt like I had to be a resource to them. Being a woman of color, knowing what it's been like for me as a professional woman in the industry, negotiating my salary has always been challenging. Asking for what I think I was worth has always been very hard, you know? And also knowing that I felt a lot of times throughout my industry that I was probably making less than a white man or than a man or than maybe someone who was white. Can I just follow up there? I mean, you said that you realized that there was a pay disparity. How did you realize that? Can you talk about what happened at your agency and how you made the decision, well, I'm just going to quit or what you did in between? Yeah. So uh, to give you background, I started my, I'll just give you a wide, (laughs) the background of where I started. I went to Emerson College, got a degree in broadcast journalism with a minor in marketing, PR and advertising, moved to Los Angeles to do the LA program that my school offered, interned at Disney Channel, interned at Univision, interned at E! Entertainment, and then from there started working in production and talent. And so essentially my role was to cast for, you know, reality TV shows. And that's kind of where I was interested initially working with talent and celebrities. And so from there, I worked at E!, did talent and casting for four years. And so negotiating those deals, I was seeing that, you know, traditional talent, as we see it, celebrities that we saw in film and TV, were getting pretty good salaries and rates for certain scopes of work. And so at that point, I saw a minor shift in the direction we were going with our casting initiatives, where we no longer wanted to cast a celebrity for, let's say, a branded partnership. We were looking at influencers because not only could we obtain them potentially at a lower cost, but also they would have their own built-in audience that was more engaged than a celebrity typically would have. And so from there, I saw that there was this interest in content creators and influencer and started working heavily in the influencer space, went to a startup where I created their entire influencer network and then went to several marketing agencies where my role was to oversee influencer strategy and marketing for several personal care brands under the Unilever umbrella and then later on under the Estee Lauder umbrella. And so in my time there, my role was to cast for these campaigns. And so a lot of times I would reach out to the content creators, ask for their rates for certain scopes of work. And so when I was getting these rates back, I was seeing across the board women of color, black and brown creators, their rates were coming in way lower than their counterparts. And this was due to a lot of them just not 
understanding their value, not understanding what they could charge for certain scopes of work, and also just not having representation. They weren't tied to bigger management agencies where a lot of their counterparts might have been. They were just representing themselves and grew a following fairly quickly and didn't realize that they could be making so much more money than they were. And that's where I saw the difference in pay. And where you saw the opportunity. I mean, not just the difference in pay, but you basically saw, oh, well, if I was representing these people, I could get them paid a lot more money and I could make some money for myself in the long run. How did you, once you decided, okay, I'm leaving, I'm going to hang out a shingle, I'm going to do this on my own. How did you build you into a business? So I had initially started consulting content creators when I was still at my role in the marketing agency. I was talking to creators, kind of advising them on what they should be charging. And I started it as like a side hustle, which I recommend anyone who wants to start a business start it as a a little side project. It's exhausting. It's tiring because you work your full time job, which I was not just 40 hours a week, 60, 70 hours, nights, weekends. And then on my downtime, I would focus on the consulting piece. I would focus on, okay, what is my brand? What is the name of the company? What do I want to do? What do I want to represent? And so anyone who's looking to start something definitely started as a a side hustle. Because then you can see, all right, with these two clients, how many clients do I need to get to make my salary? And also understanding payment terms within our industry specifically, a lot of the times, If you work on a campaign, the payment terms are net 30, net 60, sometimes net 90. So being able to plan for that. So initially I had started consulting a couple of clients that came through me through referrals where someone was like, hey, I think you could help this influencer. She's way undercharging. She needs some support. And I know, you know, you're interested in eventually starting your own business. Maybe this could be a good project. And then a couple of people reached out to me on LinkedIn for consulting services. And I hadn't initially thought about it, but I was like, this could be something interesting. And I knew that I wanted to do something more. I loved my industry. I loved the space that I was working with. And I felt like there was a need for me to pursue my purpose. And I always felt like there was something more that I wanted to do. And then when I started seeing these trends, I knew that, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to represent these creators. I want to work on the other side of it. And I want to help them make more money and make just fair money, right? The money that they should be getting that they don't know they they deserve. So when I quit, I had a couple of clients that I was consulting. And then I kind of spread the word and I told people, listen, I'm starting my own company. And I did initial outreach, reached out to a couple of creators. And then by the time, I think by the time I had left my agency at maybe like a month in, I had five clients. And then my sixth one came through referral. And so with those six clients, I was able to thankfully do good enough work where top of 2020, I got five more clients just through word of mouth and then that word of mouth is kind of how my my company propelled. Since then, I would say like 95% of our clients have been referral-based. Now we have 30 clients. And all of them, for the most part, have been through referral. I hope you're not managing 30 clients yourself. I'm not. <laughs> Thankfully, I have a team. I have a team of five. So we're six total. And then we outsource our legal and our accounting services. But yes, I have a team. Shortly there, after doing this for a year, on my own. I hit my first six figures. I was like, I need help. I need help. <laughs> or exactly. Pay my first yeah. <laughs> As an entrepreneur, I wanted to ask you about the most recent stats on Latina entrepreneurship. So we know that from February to April of 2020, there was a decline 
of 30% in Latina-owned businesses and nearly 40% in entrepreneurship among Latina non-citizens. What do you think is going on? And what do you think has to be done to help these women get back on their feet? Yeah, that's a tough statistic to hear because I feel like it makes me a little sad. I think being a first-generation American, my mother raised us off, me and my two sisters, off of $30,000 salary. And I don't know how she did it. And now here I am, you know, thankfully because of her running this seven-figure business. So there's a lot of reasons it happens. I think one of it is just lack of resources. When I initially started my company, I didn't know what to do because I didn't have anyone to lead me. I was just figuring this out on my own. So I feel like a lot of reasons why people may not succeed when they do start, or Latinas specifically may not succeed when they do start their agencies is that or companies is that they just have a lack of resources, lack of guidance. I had to figure out how to file my LLC. I had to find an accountant. I had to understand legal. I had to teach myself a lot of these things. Well, how did you do that? I mean, how did you find people to help you? Or if you were unsuccessful in finding people to help you, how did you learn these things? I shucked oysters for the first time this weekend. Nobody was there to teach me. I learned on YouTube, right? I went to some videos and I pulled up a couple of videos and I watched three and I figured, all right, they're all doing it the same way. This is the right way to do it. I didn't cut myself. It was a success. But what process did you go through? So the first thing I did was reached out to a bunch of people within my network, women specifically who had started companies. And I asked them, you know, what was the path? What did you do? How do you file? Do you have any recommendations or referrals on a good accountant, a bookkeeper? What do you use for accounting? Like I had didn't know anything about QuickBooks. I didn't know how to create an invoice. Like a lot of it's just educating myself and tapping into my network that, I mean, I've been working in this industry for 10 years at that point. So I had to go back into my, the arsenal and think about, all right, who's on LinkedIn, who I know has started a company and can help me just with the basic, how do I start? And then also what are the challenges? And so Even before that, though, now that I'm thinking about it, I was having a lot of informationals with women who worked in influencer marketing who had started their own companies, and I was picking their brains on the best way to start. So I didn't even realize that I was doing that. But now that you mention it, I did do that. Did you find them willing to give you the information? Did you find them willing to be helpful? I mean, sometimes I think, well, we think as entrepreneurs or as women working in a particular industry, well, why would she help me? Why would she help me rather than seeing me as some sort of competitor? But I've found women to be incredibly generous, some men too, but mostly women, and hope that I have done the same for other women in my field because I just think we make the pie bigger. We don't have to worry about our own slices of it. A hundred percent. I think there's so much business out there and we have to support each other in that process because we are all just trying to level up. And I think to feel like someone's a competition, I think you have to like, you have to kind of flip, make a flip in terms of how you look at it. I've seen a lot of other women who are running similar businesses as mine, where initially I was like, oh my God, that's my competition. I need to do better. I need to do. But it's like, no, we all are working towards the same goal. 
And we're all just trying to help change the lives of content creators and help them, you know, create businesses, help them find financial independence, just as we are as women. So I found that those women were very helpful. And because of them, I am where I am. And I want to pay that forward. So whenever there's someone that's asking me, how did you do it? What did you do? What is the path? I will offer that information even more so. And I feel like the next chapter for me is coaching because I feel like I wish I would have had someone to tell me the things that, you know, I know now because it would have saved me weeks, months, years, right? Understanding processes and procedures, understanding structure, how to hire, like, am I doing this right? Understanding cash flow. Like, these are things that I didn't go to school for business. I went to school for marketing, which is what I'm working in. But the business piece of it is so fundamentally important that if you don't get that, it's going to be really hard to grow and scale. The wealth and income gaps among Latinas that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, they've been around well before the pandemic. And there are a lot of structural barriers in place, education barriers, wealth barriers, healthcare barriers. There's some family barriers, I think, or barriers set up by tradition. How do we address these to build this more inclusive economy that I think, well, you and I at least both want, and I know our listeners do as well. So I think the first step is just acknowledging that they exist and being vocal about them and communicating them so that people know there is a huge gap and we are behind. There's a lot of struggles, just speaking from my own existence, coming to my mom coming to this country, not knowing the language, not understanding how to speak English. Like she didn't know how to speak a lick of English when she came here. And now here she is having a daughter who's fully bilingual. So I feel like there's a lot of barriers that come with you know, coming to this country and not understanding being first generation American. And then I think even culturally, like there's a lot of things that she couldn't really help me with, right? My homework, FAFSA, like college planning, like SAT prep, like I just had to really figure it out on my own a lot of times. Thankfully, I had an older sister who had already gone through those steps, but there's a lot of barriers that come with that and a lot of struggles and obstacles. And I think a lot of times we're just left to our own network and to, thankfully I had parents that were very hardworking and instilled hard work and dedication and education, right? From the get-go, educate yourself. You know, they were very strict with us. So there was like no boyfriends, no datings, none of that. And the focus was education and just moving up, right? So I obviously got honor rolls, you know, National Law Society. I, I did the most that I could. On top of that, I understood very quickly that extracurricular activities will help me with my resume, right? So I was like, all right, let me do as many things as possible so that I can look like a great candidate for college. And so when I got to college, I expanded on that. I did nine internships, right? I don't know anyone who's done as many internships as I have because at the end of the day, I'm paying for my college education. So I feel like we're handed the opportunity, right? So there's a lot of things that have to change within the government in terms of, you know, resources for underprivileged communities, education, right? I had no SAT prep classes. They were really expensive. I couldn't afford them. They were super like, and that's just something I couldn't, even with my part-time job, there's no way I would have been able to prepare, which is why I feel like SATs, even in general, I just don't think are the best thing to help people get into college. Because if you don't prep properly, you're going to do poorly. And then that's going to affect your chances of getting into a college. So I feel like that is just one massive barrier in itself that I've always felt very strongly about. 
because I still worked my butt off. I was honor roll, AB student. I played all basketball, volleyball, track. I did pageants. I did community work and I bombed my SATs and I didn't get into so many colleges because of my SAT scores. No, I agree with you. I think this test optional movement is a step in the right direction. And I think it from the flip side, I actually, my side hustle out of college was teaching SATs. And the fact that I could coach somebody to so much of a better score was indicative, at least at the time, that there was something really, really wrong with the test. So so I'm with you on that. I know that one of the things that you do, Pamela, in your job now is to coach creators and coach influencers on how much to charge for their services. That is a place where a lot of our listeners get stuck, whether they're charging for their services as an entrepreneur or whether they are figuring out how much to ask for in their next salary negotiation. So I want to get to that in just a second. But first, let's talk about when it's time to break up with your financial advisor or just to get a second opinion, because it comes down to this. Are you getting the attention that you deserve or are you settling? Our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, believes that you should not settle. They model more than 38,000 securities every single month to stress test your portfolio through thousands of financials, including the volatility that the market is experiencing today. Call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefv.com slash hermoney. As a hermoney listener, you'll receive a complimentary financial plan to help you decide. I'm talking with Pamela Zapata, founder and CEO of Society18. So how do we decide as entrepreneurs how to set our rates? How do we know? I'm constantly struggling with this. You know, when I go out, I give a talk, I give a speech. Should, you know, inflation is raging. Is now the time you increase your rates? Is now the time you dial them back because companies are maybe heading into a recession and budgets are going to get tighter? Can you give us some of your best tactics that apply, of course, to Latina women, but I think to all women, no matter what industry they're in? Yeah. So ah, there's so many directions I can go with this. So I'll start with when I was an industry professional and how I used to negotiate my salary. Right. And then I can talk about once you go freelance and then as a creator, because they're all similar, but they're still different. So in my career, every single time I was negotiating my salary, I made sure to do as much research as possible about the company what other people within that company with similar titles were getting paid, what their background was, right? Because sometimes you can see X years of experience is getting this much. Do your research. I would say research first and foremost and make sure the money that you're asking for is on par or above what the industry standard is, first and foremost. And so I've always negotiated my salary with that insight so that when I went forward to push for what I wanted, I had data to back me up, not just, I think I deserve this because I'm great, right? No, I've worked in this industry for 10 years. I have done influencer marketing specifically for seven or eight. I deserve this because not only can I do X, Y, Z, I can also do ABC. So making sure you're well-educated and well-researched first and foremost about the company and then also about the industry at large. I would also look at what your network is making, your friends, your colleagues, other professionals within the industry. People don't talk about money enough, and I think they should, especially women, because I feel like 
men are more open to talking about money than I think women. And I feel like women also sometimes feel like it's a competition and it's really not. I think we all need to just be transparent about where we are. Even if you don't want to share your exact salary, sharing a range, I think is helpful. So I would do that as well. As an entrepreneur, once you go freelance, I think it's understanding what you were making before as an industry professional. And then you also have to add to that because now you have to account for your expenses, right? So what is it going to cost you to run the business? What resources and tools do you need to purchase? What memberships do you need to expand your network? What is the cost to run the business, right? Right. And your personal costs, like they were providing for you a 401k. They were providing for you healthcare. You can't leave that stuff off. A hundred percent. So I think you have to really crunch the numbers and see what are the costs that I have to cover and then what is going to be left for me and kind of work backwards a little bit. Hourly rate, it just depends on your costs, right? So it's really hard. As a content creator, look into what the industry standard is. And also, what are other influencers within your following range making? Ask about it. Talk about it. I think back to my point, people don't talk enough about money, especially women. We need to be vocal about it because if we're going to get a seat at the table and we're going to be equal, we all need to make sure that we're leveling each other up and that if we see that someone's making more than us and has less of a reach, well, I need to be charging more for that, right? But also rates depend, as a content creator, rates can depend on so many things, not just your reach, your engagement rate, the quality of your content, how busy you are too. You know, if you're getting 30 partnerships a month, you can bump up your rate because, you know, you're a hot commodity. So you can charge for that. Exclusivity, usages, deliverables, all these things you can charge for as a content creator. Do you think, because I know that there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of followers. I had lunch with my friend Dina from college last week, and she has a butterfly garden. And her daughter put her on TikTok where she is the butterfly CEO. She has close to 200,000 followers, right? She could be making money. I don't think she's monetizing, but she's certainly having a very good time. I guess my question is the barriers to entry, like people who think, oh my, I want to do this. I want to be an influencer. I have an expertise. It's kind of like the new version of having the best chocolate chip cookie recipe, right? A decade ago, if you had the best chocolate chip cookie recipe, you thought you could be Martha Stewart or be Mrs. Fields. Now you have followers who are watching you because you have some butterfly garden and you could potentially make some money. Have you watched the barriers fall or have they gotten steeper? I think it depends. I feel like to get to your question about how do you turn essentially a hobby into a lucrative business, right? So Mm -hmm. for her butterfly garden, you said she's not monetizing. There's an opportunity there, right? What are the tools that she's using in that garden, right? What dirt does, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about a butterfly garden, so I can't even begin to <laughs> begin to try to think about the different types of partnerships she could have. But I feel like it's about creating a brand for yourself and creating an audience, building a trust and a loyalty and understanding that and then how to market it, right? So I think people get stuck with the, how do I market this? How do I turn this into a business? But thinking about a, what are the products she's using in that garden that could help with her garden that could make it, make it better, that could help improve it, that other people who are also have a garden like that would want to use, right? So I would say 
marketing yourself. So putting together a media kit, putting together, you know, some photos, there's a ton of resources in terms of media kits, how to market yourself online. So definitely look into that research, what it looks like, what to put on a media kit, photos, your insights, you know, if you're getting story views, if you're on Instagram, obviously Instagram stories and feed, showcase your insights, show how engaged your audience is, right? I think highlighting wins within, let's say this video went viral, got 3 million views, I use this product. Okay, what's that product? Pitch that product. Well, whatever that product is, reach out to someone who works in their PR, influencer marketing department, and pitch yourself. Hey, I work in this space. This is my following. This is my reach. I love your product. I would love to work with you in a paid capacity. I think there's great things we could do together. And figure out how to create a partnership with the brands that you're aligning with, the brands that you're already using as a content creator that you feel like you could help create some sort of conversion for the brand, right? Because I think brands really want conversion now. So it's all about Mm -hmm. selling and sales. So how do you prove that out? But I think it's about marketing yourself. Amazing advice. And the key word there was paid. I would like to work with you in a paid capacity, right? Don't undersell yourself. Don't just take free product. We've gotten into the world of entrepreneurship and a little bit away from where we started, which was talking about the Latina community. And I just want to ask as we wrap this up, for our white listeners and and our listeners of other races, how can we be the best allies and advocates that we can be? I think giving opportunities to underprivileged or other women who may not have the same resources, I think is a huge step in the right direction. I feel like I've had women who've given me opportunities and that's why where I am is because of these women that I support and that I look up to and that I admire that had resources that I didn't. So I would say be a resource and be helpful to these women that may not have the same opportunities and give them an opportunity to succeed and give that or give them a resource or just help them out. I feel like there's so many different ways that, you know, women who have the upper hand can help out women that just don't have, you know, the resources. So I would say just help each other out and talk about it, right? Talk to other women about what are ways that we can make changes in other women's lives, right? What does that look like? How can you be a resource? I think for us, resources and just relationships and just support goes a long way. A hundred percent. This has been a fun conversation for me. I learned a lot. Pamela, thank you so much. Where can we find more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, my handle on Instagram is at Pamela Zapata. Also on LinkedIn, also on Facebook and society18.com is our website and you can find all of our social handles and our business page from there. Such a pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Before we dive into our mailbag, just a reminder that Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn about a whole bunch of ways to secure your financial future. And Catherine Tuggle joins me now, and we're going to dip into some of your questions. But before we do that, Catherine, boy, what a smart cookie. I loved her. I love what she had to say about her own career and what she's doing every day to help uplift women of color. Yes, I loved all of that. But what I loved more was that she figured it out by herself. I mean, yes, she said she had mentors and that's terrific. But this is a woman who very quickly realized that she could get paid for doing exactly what she was doing in her job 
a lot more just by working for herself. And you have to love that. I remember hearing mostly from men when I was younger who were consultants, right? That they were working for firms and they very quickly discovered, hey, if I was just billing the company for doing this, I would be making so much more money. And yes, she had to put infrastructure in place, but she realized it not just for herself and her skills. She realized it for all of these individual creators. So you're right. She is lifting up women. Yeah, that's such a great point. And anybody who does it completely from scratch like that and then shares the wealth with other women. Oh my gosh, I love to see that. Yep. Yeah, we're going to definitely have her back. I want to hear more from Pamela Zapata. For sure. Our first question today comes to us from Anna. She writes, I'm a 72-year-old woman with no children. I have a holographic will, although I should make it a simple will because it is on the computer, patterned after what a previous attorney drew up for me. I have a medical directive and power of attorney as well as beneficiaries on my account. Do I need a trust because I have a condo with a mortgage? None of my relatives will want it. Thank you so much. Thanks, I have Anna. questions about this one because yeah. I don't even know what a holographic will is. So a holographic will is a handwritten will. You know, when we talk about a back of the napkin will, right? This is a back of the napkin will. I mean, I'm sure it's on a real piece of paper, but it's a will that you write yourself. It's a will that you sign without witnesses, And I don't understand exactly, I guess maybe, Anna, you were looking to save a little bit of money by not just having that previous attorney update the will that you already had. But my take on this is if you are so concerned about your condo that you are thinking about getting a trust, which by the way, is going to be much more expensive than a will, I would just redo your will and figure out where you want the value of that condo to go. Maybe it goes to charity. Maybe it goes to the relatives who are not going to want your condo. Just because there's a mortgage on it doesn't mean it has no value. The value that it has is the the value of the condo, which has likely appreciated particularly in the past couple of years, minus whatever mortgage you have on it. But the estate and the beneficiaries of your estate will inherit that. A trust would enable you and those relatives to avoid probate. It would keep the monetary value of whatever you are passing along private, as well as any other details that you wanted to keep private. But I actually don't see the need to go to that expense in this point. I would just redo your will and I would redo it with a lawyer and with witnesses to make sure that your money is going where you want it to go. And I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. I love the idea of having a lawyer and witnesses. Thank you, Jean. You're welcome. Our next question comes to us from LL. She writes, you're a gym. Thank you so much for all you do to support women. I am over the moon to have found your podcast. About three years ago, I almost died from a genetic disease I didn't know I had. 
I was working as an engineer making good money, but I had to exit the industry as I couldn't function as a normal person and just living became a chore. I'm happy to say after a lot of hard work, I am healthier, going to school for my master's, and I'm expecting a job offer next week. I never thought I'd be able to have a career again, so I am so happy for myself. My question. I'm 34. I have $0 in savings and $0 in a 401k. I had to empty it all to survive. However, I also am student loan debt-free. I own my car and I have $12,000 in a consolidated loan I plan to pay off in my first three months of employment in my new job. I'm shooting for an $85,000 salary at my next job, and my goal is to max out my 401k each year. The company offers a 75% match, up to 8%. Lastly, on a sad note, I might be going through an amicable divorce in the next year. So, how should I save for the future of not having a spouse, a divorce, and for my retirement, best in health. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you're better, right? I, I mean, like it, nothing else really matters, particularly when you are going through a life-threatening health emergency. So I'm so glad that you're through it. I'm so glad that you can see the future. I'm excited for you about this career, this job offer. It all sounds amazing. And I'm also glad that you have so much additional time on your side. 34 years old, Catherine will attest, we hear from a lot of people who say, I have zero in savings. I'm just getting started. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? And they're in their 40s or early 50s. They have less time than you have. And if they can get into the savings game and really gear up quickly, they've got enough time. So you absolutely have enough time. The worry that I have for you or the thought that is stuck in my mind right now is this divorce. And if you know that you are going through it, if this is a done deal, basically, I mean, you say you might be going through an amicable divorce, but if you really are at the point where you have talked about it, and you are certain that this is what's going to happen, I might file for divorce now. And the reason for this is once you file, at least in most states, at least in the state where I got divorced, once you file, your assets are separate. So any money at that point that you put into your 401k is your money. Any money at that point that you save is your money. And so that may make it cleaner. It may make it easier. It would certainly make it so that in the future, you don't have to go through the process of getting a quadro, which is a qualified domestic relations order that is a document that is used to split up the assets in retirement. You don't say anything about what you might be getting in this divorce, what you might be getting from your soon-to-be ex-spouse. So I'm just going to leave that off the table, but I just want to let you know how bright this picture actually looks. And the picture is particularly bright because of that very, very nice 401k match. What you said is that your company contributes 75% 
on up to 8% of earnings. So essentially what that means is that for every dollar that you contribute up to a full 8% of your salary, they will contribute 75 cents. That's really good. Most companies or many companies only contribute 50% and they only do it up to 6% of your salary. So this is amazing. So let's say you decide, I'm going to get the match. I'm going to get the full match. I'm going to contribute 8% of my salary into my 401k. That is $6,800 a year. You'll get matched on 75% of that, which is a little over $5,000 a year. All in, it's about the equivalent of putting $12,000 into your 401k each year or $1,000 a month. So let's say you do that. And let's say you do it for 10 years and you earn an average of 8% on your money. In just 10 years you'll have $182,000. In 20 years, you'll have $573,000. That's 20 years. You'll be, at that point, almost 55 years old. In 30 years, by the time that you retire, you'll have $1.4 million. And that is assuming that you never get a raise, that you never bump up the contribution in your retirement account so that you're kicking in more, that you never open a supplemental Roth IRA, that you never buy a house and pay off the mortgage, which will give you an additional pool of supplemental savings. You'll also have social security and you'll be fine. So the key is start saving Grab as many of those matching dollars as you can. Invest the money so that it grows. If you don't know what to do with it, you can always just put it into a target date retirement fund. And you'll absolutely get there. I think you've got a very, very good looking future ahead of you. The only thing that I would do is to talk to a divorce attorney right now rather than waiting. I love that, Jean. Definitely. Now is the time to take action. I feel like everything else in her life seems to be lining up. So it's better to go into this new phase of life with a clear head of where you're going. Yeah. And look, if you're really on the fence about this divorce, divorce in and of itself is no picnic and can be expensive. Even if it's amicable, it can be expensive. And so if you're really not sure you might want to ask the divorce attorney about a post-nup or something that would separate your retirement assets at this point, just in case you do decide to stay married, but you want to try to cover your bases in some other way. But please let us know what happens. We're looking forward to a really great future for you. Definitely. Thank you, Jean. Absolutely. Before we get into this week's Thrive, I want to tell you about Girl Meets Farm. It's a fantastic podcast from Food Network that we think Her Money listeners will love. Girl Meets Farm is hosted by Molly Yeah. She is a city girl married to a fifth generation beet farmer. Yes, that's true. Living on the border between Minnesota and North Dakota. And on her show, 
She cooks everything from shakshuka to chicken pot hot dish, Midwestern classics with a twist, but also crazy good dishes inspired by her Chinese and Jewish heritage. The Girl Meets Farm podcast is direct audio from the TV show. And what I'm loving most here are the sounds. You can actually hear the sizzle and the pops as she cooks bacon hash and the crunch of the cabbage in the crispy fish tacos. Try giving it a listen the next time you're cooking. It'll be like having a friend in the kitchen keeping you company. You can listen to Girl Meets Farm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And in today's Thrive, let's talk about gardening because there is nothing like the taste of fresh produce and the vibrancy of fresh flowers. But being a successful gardener takes a lot of time, takes money, takes patience, but there are ways to grow green at an affordable price. This week at Her Money, we've got a rundown on how to get going, even in the face of extreme budget and space constraints. Here are just a few of our favorite tips. When you go to a garden store, before you buy a plant, look it up on your phone. Make sure that it is actually a good plant for the zone that you live in. That'll help ensure its longevity. Planting things and then having to rip them up can get very expensive. Also, as you're picking out your plants, inspect them closely. Make sure they have a healthy root system and check the cups. The cups will be the same price, but some cups may have more than one seedling, so you'll get more plants for the same price. Also talk to your neighbors. People often buy extra plants and you may be able to organize a swap or just take something off a neighbor's hands who happened to buy too much. And while you're thinking about your neighbors, look to your community for free resources. Tree trimming companies may have wood chips to spare and community gardens and farms may have extra soil and seedlings. And if you live in an apartment, Note that microgreens are a super popular healthy choice for growing in an apartment, even if all you have is a few glass mason jars. You can cut them off, add them to your salad, and they grow right back. Good luck. And if you do decide to do a little gardening this summer, we'd love to see your pictures. You can find us on social media. We are at Her Money Media pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Pamela Zapata for getting candid about what Latina women are facing today and how we can all work together to emerge from the pandemic stronger than before. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.